The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 25-44. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whosoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. This is the word of the Lord. Living God, you you are wonderful and worthy of our praise. And this morning, as we continue to praise you and turn our attention to you as we Uh, Lift our ears and point them in your direction and open our eyes. We ask that your Holy Spirit would clarify all that uh, is spoken here, that uh, everything that is returned back to you out of our words, out of our songs, out of our prayers, uh, even the depths of our soul today, the actions of our life would bring honor and glory to you and would truly reflect our following of you. God, you are so good and gracious that you would call us to yourself, that we are grateful for it. Bless this time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I got a text this morning from, excuse me, from Pastor John, all the way over, excuse me, all the way over in Scotland. He says, uh, I have been asked to bring greetings from Tiburon Baptist Church to St. Adris Baptist today. Um, So he wants to remind us that we join them, in a sense, spiritually and in worshiping across the pond. And so that is a good word from Pastor John that uh, he is, though he may be miles from you, his heart is not. And uh, he is here 
with us in spirit. Um, wanted to uh, think with you for a minute. If uh, <clears throat> if I stood up here with uh, darker hair than I have now, and even more hair than I have now, and if I took that hair and and I, I combed it back, and if I were to step off the platform and come back in a a nice sequined jumpsuit, and if I stood in front of you and made a motion sort of like this, what would you think of? Elvis. Elvis. Why? Those are some of his signature moves, right? Some of the identifiers of who he is. If I had a big whiteboard behind me and a marker in my hand and I wrote uh, four uh, simple symbols, E equals MC squared, who would you think about? Einstein. Why? Because this is one of his signature teachings. And indeed, signatures are part of what helps us identify people, identify actions, identify teachings along the way. And we've been accustomed to identifying such people and such actions and teachings with certain persons. In fact, when these names like Einstein or like Elvis are mentioned, we almost come to expect that we would have these signatures also presented because they are so part and parcel with who those people are. We look for them. And similarly, there are signature actions and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Craig has taken on uh, Sunday nights the last four weeks, has taken uh, a group through the Sermon on the Mount. That is one of Jesus's signature teachings. One of his signature actions, of course, is the death on the cross that we will remember on Good Friday and certainly on Easter morning. Probably the pinnacle of our faith is that reminder that he is raised from the dead. And this is just to name a few. In fact, the Gospel of John, if we were to take time today to read it from beginning to end, we would see that one of the signature concepts that comes out in describing Jesus is the concept of origin and destination. In fact, the book opens in describing who the Christ is, that his origins are from everlasting and his destination is to everlasting. It runs throughout John's gospel, origins and destinations. In fact, he would say in John 8 that I am from above, but you are from below. Over and over we see Jesus returning to this theme. In John chapter 14, we, right before Jesus would, uh, or 13, right before Jesus would, would go and wash the disciples' feet, there's a, a summary statement by the gospel writer reminding us that Jesus was mindful that he had come from the Father, and he was soon to return to the Father. This idea of origins and destinations. You see, we moderns uh, have certain expectations about what signatures ought to accompany the reality of God in our lives. If God is real, then he will manifest himself in certain ways. If Jesus is indeed God's unique one, the Messiah then certainly he should speak to me in an audible voice or manifest himself in a vision that I couldn't deny because, after all, if I could see Jesus plainly in the flesh, then certainly I wouldn't walk away in 
forget that or abandon that, right? Well, the Bible is full of encounters and events where people came face to face uh, in, in a sense or, or encountered an angel or, or walked with the Christ himself, yet turned around and walked away. So we know that's not always the answer. Well, certainly, uh, if Jesus is truly God's unique one, he wouldn't allow this sort of pain or this difficulty or this heartache in my life. You see, we, we come for many reasons to expect certain signatures out of God's unique one, the Messiah. And today, out of a few verses in the seventh chapter of John's gospel, we're reminded of a signature teaching of Jesus. We're reminded... That in Christ, life at its deepest is offered. That in Christ, we are invited into the very life of God. And that in Christ, that life is now and extends forevermore. The passage reveals that in Jesus' day, people expected different signatures of the Messiah. Some in verse 27, they, they thought, well... We know that Jesus, this Jesus teacher, this rabbi, is from the region of Galilee. It'd be like somebody looking at Glenn and say, I know Glenn. He's from the Bay Area. Certainly he can't be the one that we're hoping for because their, their reasoning is that no one will know where the Messiah is from. In other words, he might have a life and have a, a human origin, but he will just sort of suddenly burst onto the scene in great power and demonstration. So that was one signature that people were looking for, and an incorrect one. In verse 31, it says, uh, it describes another signature, a marker that people were looking for, and they, they asked the question, will the Messiah do more miracles than this man? So some people were looking for miracles, and certainly some would begin to follow Christ only because of the signs and wonders that he performed. But as he began to talk about the life of discipleship, the Gospel of John describes some of those who followed him early on began to fall away. They began to scratch their heads and say, wow, this is a demanding teaching. I don't think I'm up for this. Still others in verse 42, they took the opposite track of those in verse 27. We had some who thought we, we shouldn't know where the Messiah is from. Others said, well, yeah, we should. In fact, we know he's from David's line. We know he should be from uh, the city of David, Bethlehem itself. And because Jesus growing up in Nazareth and now coming forth out of Galilee, they didn't associate him with Bethlehem, even though that's where he was born. So there were all sorts of certain signatures that people were looking for in Jesus's day to uh, identify the one who was uniquely called and uniquely sent to deliver the people. But here we see those signature themes, life at its deepest, that in Christ we are invited into the very life of God, and that that life is now and for forever. What about life at its deepest? Jesus, he really has three different statements that he makes in these verses, verses 25 through 44. The first one is, is a clarification. The people are saying, we know where he's from. Certainly we shouldn't if he really is the Messiah. And Jesus says, yeah, you, you kind of know me, but you don't really know me. In other words, uh, you know my physical address, my earthly address, but that's not nearly as important as my heavenly origin. 
In John chapter 8, he would look at these same people and he would say, you neither know me nor the Father. And if you don't receive and accept me, you certainly don't have the relationship with the Father that you think you have. The two go hand in hand. You want to know and walk with and relate to the living God in heaven. You embrace the living Christ as he has revealed himself. He describes his destination, that he has come from the Father, and because he's come from the Father, he knows him, unlike those that he was speaking to. And because he's come from the Father, he will certainly return to the Father. And in verse 34, he looks at these people and he says, but where I'm going, you cannot come. In chapter 8, he would say again, you cannot come where I am going, for you will certainly die in your sins. Whoa, what a sobering thought. What a disturbing thought. For these were the most religious people in probably the most religious region of earth on this day, in this era. And it was disturbing for someone to try to tell them that their destiny would not be with God. What was all of their religious practice for if they could not go and ultimately be with the living God? Can you see how disturbing that would be for them? You see, the human heart longs to be with God. History and cultures are littered with this desire. Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, describes some of these, and I just want to read them. They're kind of bullet points. He says, the sense that we will live forever somewhere has shaped every civilization in human history. Australian Aborigines pictured heaven as a distant island beyond the western horizon. The early Finns thought it was an island in the faraway east. Mexicans, Peruvians, Polynesians... Believe that they went to the sun or the moon after death. Native Americans believe that in the afterlife, their spirits would hunt the spirits of buffalo. The Gilgamesh epic, an ancient Babylonian legend, refers to a resting place of heroes and hints at a tree of life. In the pyramids of Egypt, the embalmed bodies had maps placed beside them as guides to the future world. The Romans believed that the righteous would picnic in the Elysian fields while their horses grazed nearby. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, said, The day thou fearest as the last is the birthday of eternity. Although these depictions of the afterlife differ, the unifying testimony of the human heart throughout history is belief in life after death. Anthropological evidence suggests that every culture has a God-given innate sense of the eternal, that this world is not all that there is. Missionary Don Richardson picked up on this idea and, uh, from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, titled his book, Eternity in Their Hearts, where it says that God has placed eternity in the heart of humankind. How disturbing it must have been for these people to hear from the lips of this rabbi teacher, Jesus, that where he was going, they could not come. That they could not go. But that's never the end of the story, is it, with Jesus? Because the good news 
on his destination was that his very destination was indeed available to those who would reach out and to receive him, to those who would turn from their sin and to embrace the goodness and grace of God as expressed through the person of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, in some of his final words to his closest group of followers there, he would say to them, you know the way where I am going. Thomas says, Lord, how do we know the way? What does Jesus say? You probably remember. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus, one of his signature teachings is that life at its deepest is available. That the invitation to the kingdom is open to you. If anyone is thirsty, Jesus says in this passage. And you see, being thirsty is more about uh, being, being with him rather than traveling to. It's not just having, having a destination plotted on a map and I'm going to figure out the turns and, and the right times to exit and going here. It's less about that and it's more about here is my guide and it is beside him That I go, I trust his steps so that I might follow in them as he goes. You see, Jesus stands at this great feast of tabernacles at the at the greatest height, highest part of the day of the week, probably the seventh day when the the final crescendo is happening as the the water and wine sacrifices were being poured out on the ground. Jesus stands up and he says, if you are thirsty, come To me and drink from me. And then you can hear the echo of what he told the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Within you and from you, because of me in you, there will be rivers of living water. Springs will gush forth from you because of my being in you. You see, he offers a drink of water. Come and be with me rather than... Here's a map. You want to come where I am? Here's a map. Take these turns. Check this off your list. Do this and do that. And then you'll find yourself at the end of the scale. Things will balance out properly. That's not what he says. He says, come to me. He offers the cup and he says, drink from this cup. It's a personal invitation, not an impersonal map to follow. The Egyptians were buried under the pyramids with maps that hopefully would guide them somewhere into their unknown eternity, but not so with the living Christ, because he is our companion, both in this life and in the life to come. We need no map in the afterlife because we walk with the guide who shows us the way. In John chapter 10, he reminds us that he is the good shepherd, the one who guides the sheep. The one who knows where the destination is and the one who can lead us safely and rightly there. That is the work of the Christ. But some won't follow. Some will just flat out reject him. Sometimes people don't follow because Jesus somehow gets obscured behind layers of cultural fog and misinformation. But others will follow because they they have identified Jesus as the way. His water is now in them. 
Jesus identifies himself as the gate. For those who want to come in, they must come through the gate. And guess what? I am the gate. There is no access into the kingdom unless you come through me. There's a story of a swimmer who wants uh, a female swimmer who swam the English Channel both directions successfully. And she wanted also to swim from Catalina Island down in Southern California to the California coast. And the day she began to swim, the, the, the coastline was shrouded in fog. Uh, must have been strange for them down there to have fog, unlike it is up here for us. She began to swim, and the waves were a little choppier than she anticipated. And after a while, she got tired, and she got discouraged, but she kept swimming. And the support boats around her, one of them containing her mother, encouraged her, keep going, keep going. And as she continued to look up for a sight line, she couldn't see anything because it was shrouded in fog. And she got more and more discouraged because she couldn't see and and her vision was opaque. And as she continued to swim, she was encouraged by her mother, keep going, keep going. And eventually she gave up. Her mother said, you're so close, keep going. But she climbed into the boat. And found out after all those miles of swimming, she was less than a mile from the shore. But because she was shrouded in fog and couldn't see the shoreline, she gave up. Because she couldn't see clearly. That's part of the reason the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 reminds us to keep our eyes fixed. Fixed on Jesus. The author of and the perfecter, the finisher, the completer of your faith. The one who endured the shame of the cross, was risen from the dead, and now sits in his destination at the right hand of the Father. And that same destination is what he makes available to you and for me as we trust in him completely. The final signature theme that Jesus pulls out is not only is this life available, the deepest life, not only is is he inviting you into it, but life with God is both now and forever. This eternal life doesn't simply start at the time you close your eyes for the last time. The eternal kind of life begins now. Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, describes it. This way, when when Jesus comes in Mark chapter 1 and says, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. This idea of at hand, Dallas Willard describes in a couple of paragraphs. He describes his growing up on a farm in, in Missouri where electricity was available only in the form of lightning. He said, we had more than we could use. But in the senior year of high school, the rural, that's a hard word for me to say, the Rural Electrification Administration extended its lines into the area where we lived, and the electrical power became available to households and farms. When those lines came to our farm, a very different way of living presented itself. Our relationships to fundamental aspects of life, daylight, dark, hot and cold, clean and dirty, Work and leisure, preparing food and preserving it could even be vastly changed. But we still had to believe in the electricity and its arrangements to understand them and take the practical steps involved in relying on it. He goes on to describe that's kind of a crude uh, description of God's kingdom and our entering into it. But the idea that he goes on to explain is that there must be intention on our part. 
When Jesus spoke to these disciples, or not even these disciples, to the crowds here in John chapter 7, he is pointing to himself and saying, if you would see me clearly and move beyond the religious fog, move beyond the secular fog, move beyond the social fog, and all of the misinformation about what you think I should be and what you think I should teach and how you think I should act and behave, If you would move beyond that and allow me to cut through that and to show you clearly where I stand on the shore so that your sight line might be fixed squarely on me, you will know life at its deepest. You will know and receive this invitation that I give to you and you will experience and discover that this eternal kind of life, that your destination starts now and extends into forever. It doesn't matter where you start in your understanding. It doesn't matter if you've been well-trained as a child or not in the things of God. What matters is your ability now, by God's hand, to see Him clearly. To hear his invitation to you and to hunger and to take the steps necessary to enter into the eternal kind of life now. And what are those steps? They're the steps of repentance to turn away from my sinful patterns that dishonor and displease God and really bring ruin upon my life and to turn to God so that I might know the fullness that he offers to me. To cry out and to confess that to him and to say, Lord Jesus, I believe you. I entrust my life to you. Lead me now into this life that you've described so well so that I might be known and truly be your disciple. Father, this is the cry of our hearts. We confess that there are times that we get shrouded in the fog of what our culture tells us, the fog of disbelief, the fog of misinformation. And God, we're fooled into thinking there are other signatures beyond what you have clearly offered to us in your scripture. Life at its deepest is in you. The invitation into your very life is found in you, Lord Jesus. And that life with you begins now and extends forever. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts with such a beautiful and profound and clear picture of the eternal life that begins now that our hearts would pound and that our feet would dance with rejoicing because of your goodness I've not deserved this or earned it. None of us have. Yet you give it out of your good nature. And for that, may we be eternally grateful. Lord Jesus, it is in your name and because of your teaching and action that we can pray such prayers. And all of God's people said, Amen.